So today we're going to be looking at church government. Why do we have the structures in place that we have in place? Uh, And we have kind of an interesting history compared to some uh, churches, some Presbyterian churches. We are now a Presbyterian church, but at one point in time, we were a Congregationalist church. So we have had experiences with two of the three governments that we're going to look at in comparison tonight. But we're going to talk about, first of all, some biblical principles about where does the, what does the Bible have to say about the structure of church uh, and that sort of thing. Then we're going to look into particular structures that have been used throughout the church. And then we're going to close with a, kind of a brief overview of the history of our particular de- denomination. So basically, why do we have to have church government? Well, <laughs> you know, we Presbyterians, you can't avoid the whole sin issue for, you know, more than one or two slides. So because of sin, we, we've got to have order in place. We have to have potential for disciplinary courts in place. We have to have an authority structure in place. Now, the Bible does not really stipulate a particular form of government for nations, uh, uh, that, uh, that really is better than one for the other, but all people agree that anarchy is evil and is, it, is, uh, it is confusion and it's disorder. So we don't want anarchy in the church any more than we want anarchy in our nation. So because of the sin nature of people, uh, because of the spirit of independence, we tend to want to be independent. That is especially true in Americans. You know, we are just by nature kind of an independent nature uh, sort of people. Uh, so there, there is a point in time where you have to have some commitment uh, to a local body. You have to have structure in a local body. You have to have order in a local body. And you have to have authority in a local body to help kind of rein in and, and really channel that independence in profitable ways, right? And then because it's just biblical, you know, we, we simply don't have the option just to be willy-nilly and kind of run things the way we want to. This is one of my concerns with this growing house church movement. A lot of that, what's behind that, is people who just kind of want to call the shots there on their own. And it ends up leading to some disorder and some, some, some potential concerns. All right, so we want to look at a couple of verses in Ephesians that sort of establish Christ as the head of the church, right? Okay, so... Um, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, And he, God, put all things under his, Jesus' feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So who is the head of the church? Jesus. All right, let's try that again. Who is the head of the church? Jesus. Very good. Very good. All right. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and evangelists to shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Again, you've seen this emphasis before, but there's a training that goes on on Sunday and other times to equip you to do the work of ministry. So there's an empowerment to the congregation that we find here in Scripture uh, that uh, the ministry isn't just in church officers. It's there to equip you to do the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. Uh, this is so important to Christ that he considers the church to be his body. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Who is the head of the church? Jesus Christ, okay, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love, okay? Now, and it's our view that that, that God does all this and and fulfills those, those first few roles there 
by calling out certain men for the work of church officers. And you see two different offices in the, in the church. You see this in, uh, in the Old Testament we'll look at, but also in the New Testament. Elders and deacons. And we'll, uh, we'll look at some of these texts. You see Old Testament church government. You, in Exodus, you know, Moses, you know, this famous account where Moses was exhausting himself, listening to all the court cases himself uh, and having to be concerned for the people. And his, and, and his uh, father-in-law, Jethro, comes up to him and says, you're going to kill yourself and you're going to kill the people. Appoint 70 elders, heads of tribes, to be able to handle, handle the minor court cases. And then you will be the Supreme Court. It comes to you. And then you can handle the more difficult situations. So Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, leaders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They judged the people at all times. Now, Israel here was a theocracy. So, so it's kind of what Islam attempts to do. It was religion and politics melded in one. So these are elders, are ecclesiastical elders. They're, they're religious elders, as we'll see in, in another verse here. But they were also city councilmen. I mean, they were also rulers of the, uh, or heads of the, of the culture of other tribes and things like that. In Leviticus, you see the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, and the bull shall be slain before the Lord. That's obviously part of their worship. The elders were involved with the Old Testament worship. Joshua 24, 1, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and for their judges and their officers, and they uh, presented themselves before God. 1 Kings 8, Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers, households of the sons of Israel to King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant. So that's another, that's sort of a religious and civil duty combined together there. From the city of David, which is in Zion, then all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the ark. So you, you see this emphasis. I mean, the, the, matter of fact, if you were to do a, a, a word search for elder, uh, I, don't, I didn't actually count the number of verses, but I have some Bible software I can put in elder and it can show me all the accounts. I mean, it's just it's overwhelming how much there's emphasis on the elders taking. And it has to be that way, right? You can't have every citizen coming up and helping bring up the Ark of the Covenant. Someone's got to make a casserole. You know what I mean? <laughs> but, uh, you know. All right. Then you see New Testament, right? Book of Acts. So you already had the apostles, and then the, the church was already growing to the extent that they were having difficulty uh, uh, meeting the needs. And we had this issue of, of, uh, of Greek-speaking uh, widows being overlooked. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of God, good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of the task. So here we've got apostles who, as you'll see, Peter in just a minute considers himself an elder. There's some practical things, some, care, some money things, some care of, uh, of, of congregational things that, that, that there's another level of office that's needed. So this is considered kind of the establishment of the diaconate of the first deacons. They were all men. And it's interesting, in order to maintain peace and prosperity, who was being overlooked? It was the Greek-speaking wives. All of the men that are mentioned later in Acts as deacons were Greek, had Greek names. You know, so, so they were kind of of that same ill. So they would make sure that there was no racism, there was no deliberate 
passing over the Greek speakers as opposed to and giving preference to the Hebrews and that kind of thing. But you seem to see sort of the establishment of the diaconate right here. And I tell you, we have such a great, wonderful diaconate in this church. I love walking in and seeing something that's been done that I didn't know a thing about. That is a celebration to me because they're showing that, hey, we got this. We got this. You go study, you know, you preach, you do the counseling, you do all these other things. We'll figure out a way to how to get the parking lot fixed, you know, these sort of things. And it just delights me to see that. And they, they, we, we have just been so, bl- so blessed with an act of diaconate. Um, Acts 14, 23, and when they had appointed elders from them in every church and prayed and fasted, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So here you see establishing elders in the new churches that are coming out. Notice that the elders are appointed. They're not necessarily elected. There's a danger here of having popular elected elders. Now, all officers are nominated by you. But there's some things that the elders of this church might know about a particular uh, uh, person or whatever. That, 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 so it needs to come through us before they're actually asked. And we need to ask them some questions and things like that. So, so basically the elders are appointed and they, they are appointed based on their character. As we'll see in just a few minutes. Uh, Paul is at Miletus saying goodbye to the Ephesians elders. He spent uh, two or three years at Ephesus. Uh, and uh, he is, he's on his way back to Jerusalem, and he gives them this charge. Pray careful attention to yourselves, to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So there's the charge. They are overseers. Now, th- that overseer word is the word that's translated bishops. We'll see that in just a minute. But Paul uses the word elder, presbytos, and bishop, uh, the word for bishop, interchangeably, so they're synonyms of one another. They're not different positions. So, because he's calling these elders, right, overseers here. So he's not talking about a hierarchy here. So then there's more references to officers in the church. First, in, First Timothy three, um, uh, Titus one. You know, can uh, uh, talk about uh, a lot of issues in regards to officers. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. We'll look at that in First Peter five. We'll look at that. Uh, James uh, talks about pray, elders praying for the congregation. And then qualifications for elders and deacons. 1 Timothy 1 and Titus chapter... Is it 1 Timothy 1 or 1 Timothy 3? 1 Timothy 1 and Titus chapter 1. He talks about the qualifications. What is an elder supposed to be like? You know, this, this really... I, I've, we've talked, I've talked about this thing. We, uh, for several years, we actually had an elder qualification test that a church that I used to be part of used to use and just ask them basic questions about family life self-control and that kind of thing. And, uh, and I remember talking to various people in various churches. They were shocked that we actually emphasized qualifications for elders. Uh, some, because sometimes it's just a, a popularity contest or someone who's just willing to do the job and that kind of thing. But it's better to have fewer elders than to have unqualified people in positions of authority, right? So let's talk about this. The functional qualifications of elders and deacons, they really have basically the same qualifications, but they have different functions uh, within, the, within the church. So first of all, you want to see, we're going to see how they are in relation to God, relation to others, relation to self, and relation to family. In relation to God, they are to hold firmly to scriptural truths. 
You know, this was one of Paul's concerns at Miletus. He says, savage wolves will come among yourselves, not sparing the flock. He knew that false teachers would arise in Ephesus. You had this problem in Corinth, which we've been talking about for the last year, right? Those, some of those people were probably church officers. They, they, got, they got a hold of some false teaching. They were jealous. They were ambitious. Uh, they wanted to have more authority than Paul or whatever it might be. They need to be upright and holy. They do not need to be perfect. Trust me, we would have very, very quiet session meetings if you had to have perfect elders, right? Uh, but they need to be in general. The general principle is to be above reproach. All right. But they need to love the Lord. They need to be actually Christian. They need to be converted. Uh, you know, one of those terrifying things. When a Billy Graham crusade we used to come to town, we were we were. Uh, what do they call these uh, helpers at the Billy Graham crusade that came to Columbia years ago? And they said one of the biggest effects the Billy Graham's crusade has in a town is the number of pastors who get saved. Like, pastors. Who get saved. That's pretty terrifying, isn't it? Who was the, uh, the Dutch prime minister who was a uh, pastor? Five, yeah, uh, uh, Kuiper. Kuiper. Kuiper was a pastor for several years. And then uh, he was struggling in the ministry. And some little ladies came up to him and said, here's the problem, son. And you ain't a Christian. Well, they said that in, in Dutch. <laughs> you know, but uh, you're not a Christian. You know? So he ended up getting saved. Ended up being this amazing pastor, uh, Abraham Kuyper. Uh, need to be able to teach. That's actually a qualification of an elders that is not a qualification of a deacon. Does not necessarily mean that they have to be have the gift of teaching, but they need to be able to teach, communicate one on one, uh, perhaps in a group. Uh, you know, some elders are better at group teaching. Some elders are better at one on one teaching, but they need to be able to teach, be able to communicate these truths. They have to have been tested. You don't want uh, the PCUSA. You know, I don't mind throwing stones when 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 people have earned the stones, the PCUSA has youth elders. Did you know that? Some of y'all are refugees from the PCUSA. Youth elders. Well, they make teenage kids in the youth group elders. They will ordain them as youth elders. They allow them to serve communion. Did I mention youth elders? I mean, that's just a contradiction in terms. It's an insult. You know, so why would you make a 17-year-old, oh, we want to encourage them in a ministry. Yo, that's fine. And then they leave a, it's a dumpster fire in the church, you know. What kind of authority? I'm sure there's some qualifications and they don't have a lot of authority and stuff. But it kind of makes a mockery, to be honest with you, of the, of the position. Uh, they need to be above reproach. That is a general term that I just love. That, that uh, they have a Teflon personality. Nothing sticks to them, you know. Uh, they're, not, they're not accused of scandal. Uh, you, you, you know, no one at their workplace would be shocked to find out that they would have been made a church officer, that sort of thing. And not a new convert. They got to have a few gray hairs. Uh, you know, I, I, and I've struggled before. You know, one of the ch challenges we've got is is elders that still have full time jobs and raising families and, and things like that. And, and I've thought before, one of the problems with our elders is they're not eld. You know, we need we probably need some good old retired folks who really have some time to help with the visitations and stuff like that that aren't out there doing their 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 jobs all the time. But these are all the points of the relationship to God. There's a there's a maturity that needs to be here where they uh, and you could be a young elder. You could just be extremely mature. 
but, but you've got to stand before God, so you need to be, be able to, ha- to, to do so and have those qualifications. Relations to others, they need to be sincere, not uh, hypocritical. They need to be respectful, hospitable. You know, uh, whatever God's given them, they use to further ministry and help others. This is a, a, a command. And, and hospitality is an expression of love, right? Remember, love, the opposite of love is apathy. But if you're showing hospitality, you're, you're, you're spending time with people, that's a, a great relation with others. Uh, y'all do that by, uh, by show, one reason why, you know, in, in three or four weeks, we're going to have an additional 50 people perhaps in this congregation because those folks come here because y'all love them and you feed them and you show them hospitality and they're away from home and they, they know they can come here. And, and I had one student tell me uh, one reason why he doesn't go somewhere else is that, is that, at the other church, they, they started feeding college students, but it was sort of institutionalized. One family comes, they stay in the kitchen, they serve out the students, and the students are all just eating by themselves. There's no other participation from the church. So it is, yes, a generous free meal, but it's not the church behind it. When y'all feed the students, you have these home groups that are participating, and there could be six or seven families with kids and everything in there serving and sitting with the students and, and, and showing them, you know, uh, you know, what it means to, to, to show Christian love. They're not quarrelsome. You know, some people just love to argue. They love a fight. They, they're competitive, and they want to win and that kind of thing. They're not violent but gentle. We just can't have elders slapping people around. It just it makes the headlines these days, right? Good reputation with outsiders. Again, you wouldn't want to create a scandal by making someone an an officer. Not overbearing. You know, there's a a principle here where someone, y'all have all been been part of organizations where people love power and they'll, it might end up being the model train club, but they are in charge of that model train club. You know, it might be the garden club. This is my garden club, you know. I want a spruce name for me. I don't know. But they, they, they love this power. And uh, they, they need, there needs to be humility. They need to be not overbearing. You know, we said this as, the, as an elder. You've got to do this. Uh, not a pursuer of dishonest gain. They're entrusted with money. They're entrusted with money. We, we can't have thieves counting the offering. Relation to self, they need to be disciplined. Temperate, we just can't have people showing up drunk. Oh, it's happened. <laughs> it happened in Corinth, right? Not a lover of money, not, that is not their idol. Self-controlled, not quick-tempered. Boy, I tell you, you know, it's hard. You, you lose your temper to somebody in the church, and it's just hard to ever take that. Well, you can't take it back, right? You just got to do damage control after that. Uh, not get, given to uh, drunkenness. Relation to family, having one wife, that, that principle, the, the, the Greek there is actually a one woman kind of man. So he's not a polygamist and he's not playing the field. He is faithful to that one wife. It does not mean that they can't be divorced. If, you know, there's biblical grounds for divorce, there's biblical grounds for divorce. But it means that they're not playing the field. Obviously, because they're in position of authority, might be in a position of counseling. Uh, if, they're a, if they have a predatory streak, that could be uh, very bad uh, in the church, right? Having obedient children. They're, they're, when you walk into their house, there should be some order to their house. Their, their children should be, uh, should be uh, respectable, that kind of thing. And then they manage their household well, all right? 
So let's look at some of these other texts. For, uh, Peter's interesting because uh, what Peter says. So I exhort the elders among you. And notice, here's the apostle Peter, right? The, the, the chief among equals here. As your fellow elder. He doesn't, he doesn't play the apostle card here. He, he associates himself as an elder in the church. And a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples of the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfounding of unfading crown of glory. So you see this illustration that, that, that the elders are not kings. They're not presidents. They're not potential tyrants. They're shepherds leading the flock, sacrificing for the flock, going through hiding. And they know the condition of the flock. They can name the sheep. They know how the sheep are doing. Now, the sheep got to cooperate. You know, yeah, uh, you know one, of the, one of the difficulties with working in a middle class, upper middle class congregation is, is because image is so important and so important for y'all's businesses and your relationship in the community and stuff like that. Sometimes things go, are going very badly, but you won't tell anybody. And the shepherds are responsible for knowing how you're doing. So you need to let us know how you're really doing. Southerners are worse at it, right? How you doing? I just find how you doing, partner? You know, and their life is a nightmare. But they don't want anybody to know about that. You know, that, that, I mean, I think there's a difference in culture there. You, you get a, a good old working class, blue collar, Belton Church of God. And they just they just wear their sin out on their sleeve, you know. They just they'll have a knockdown fight in the aisle at Walmart, you know. They just tell you all about how everything. There's got to be a middle ground there somewhere, right? But I think some of it is is we don't like to air our dirty laundry. Well, you shouldn't, but you but if you're a sheep that's hurting and diseased, you need to get your elders to to, to be aware of it. All right, other other New Testament. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls for those who have to give an account, right? They have to get, we will have to give an account for how you're doing. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. There are church members who make elders groan. They just make elders groan uh, because they're just, they're, they're just struggling in their sanctification and that kind of thing. Uh, so, you may have a groaning situation, but work with the elders so that you don't make them groan. If anyone is sick, let them call for the elders. And here's James. Uh, call for the elders of the church and let them pray over them, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. We've done this. We have gone to people who've had very serious illnesses and we've anointed them with oil and prayed for them. Uh, you know, it's an interesting transition here. James tells them to do that. Notice James doesn't say whip out the, the healing ministry, you know. Come forward, and if you've got one leg that's shorter than the other leg, we're going to straighten up that other leg, which is a favorite thing. Like, evidently, there's all these long-legged people in the world that only go to these preachers and get their leg lengthened, you know? So, uh, yeah, no, you pray. You, you pray that the Lord would, would heal them. All right, so here are the different forms of church government. There's really three big ones uh, of church government uh, 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 
theories, basically. And these are all being practiced in churches today. An Episcopal form of government, a Presbyterian form of government, and a Congregational form of government. The Episcopal government comes from Episcopos, or overseer. So the, so the very name of the denomination, for instance, is just like us. We are old man-led, Presbyterian. So church government literally defines the name of the, of the congregation, and, uh, I mean of the denomination in this case, Episcopalian. There's a hierarchical structure. Ultimate authority is to govern in the hands of bishops who are over other uh, the local uh, priests. Large distinction between laity and clergy. There's an uh, argument heavily based upon church history as opposed necessarily to scripture and designed with a top-down kind of, of, of authority. They do have some scriptural basis, but they look at what happened with church history. And what happened over time is that uh, once the church, the, the church uh, received approval from, from the Roman government, the church in some ways started to mimic the Roman government in a lot of ways to the point where you have, a, uh, instead of a Caesar, you have a pope. Uh, instead of a senate, you have bishops and that kind of thing, the Catholic church, for instance. Um, here's the problem with Episcopal government, according to Presbyterian standards, is there's little to no New Testament support. Uh, there's no apostolic secession that's really emphasized in Scripture, and they would really emphasize there has to be an apostolic secession. When you have the hands laid on you, the people that laid on you and them on them before and before have to go all the way back to Peter and Paul and uh, they use James or Acts 15 here, uh, Timothy, Titus, examples of bishops. So they would use the Council of Jerusalem as an example of a hierarchical structure within the church. That's not all wrong, uh, but it's not necessarily uh, the case either, as we'll see. Disagrees with the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. And that's one of those things that was rediscovered in the, uh, in the Protestant Reformation, this emphasis that, that, Paul, uh, that Peter calls us, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He's talking not to, he's not talking to priests or pastors or bishops. He's talking to you. You, an individual Christian, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions. Why is that? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Again, you are to do the work of ministry. You are empowered by God as, as a priest in a sense. So when, 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 now we don't go around calling each other priest or father, right? You know, uh, but when you have priests, it, seems, it tends to kind of uh, dismiss the priesthood of all believers if you're not careful. The denominations that practice this particular form of government are Episcopalian, uh, Anglican, Methodist, and Roman Catholic. Uh, this is what the stru structure looks like on a, on a flow chart, organization chart. You have the archbishop. The, uh, the archbishop over the Anglican church is the archbishop of Canterbury. And then he has various uh, uh, areas of the world that are, that are delegated to other bishops and then the diocese. And then you have a priest and then you have the congregation, all that. So it's a very hierarchical uh, form of government. The Presbyterian form of government, and we'll talk about advantages and disadvantages of each in just a minute, because it's not, it's not clean. It's not just this pure, this is wrong, because there are some right with all of them, and there's some wrong probably with all of them. So a Presbyterian form of government is a representative form of government. There's checks and balances. This, again, goes back to total depravity. You know, this is where we started on this series, right? We just have a fundamental distrust of people, <laughs> you know? And I think not, not to, we don't want to take that to a point of, of weirdness, but we understand that all people are fallen creatures. We are sinful people, and we need to put 
structures in place that that encourage prosperity and creativity and everything else and hard work and reward. But we also need to put structures in place that that help keep that sin nature in check. Right. So. So. And and of course, this was coming out of the Presbyterianism was rediscovered after the book of Acts. Uh, by uh, John Calvin. He introduced it to John Knox in Scotland. But it was rediscovered after a time of very excessive tyrannical rule on a hierarchical structure coming from Rome. So that's one reason why Presbyterianism can, can be a little militant about church government, which you think is kind of one of these things indifferent here. Uh, it relies heavily on Acts 15 and 16, the Council of Jerusalem, because there was an accountability there. All right, so you had this issue with what do, what, do, what do we do with the Gentiles? Do they need to be circumcised and everything? The Council of Jerusalem met together. You, we would call it a synod. The Presbyterians would call it a general assembly. They got together. The PCA would call it a general assembly. They got together and they decided this is what we don't need Greeks to be circumcised. Or these are the things we want them to do. They, they made these decisions. Then they sent those decisions out to the various churches through the various missionaries and that kind of thing. So you had an accountability structure. You had local congregations were accountable to, to, to the Jerusalem council and that sort of thing. And then uh, establishes elders and deacons in the New Testament as the repeatable pattern. So, you know, our view is that there's two offices, elders and deacons. Within elders, there's teaching elders and ruling elders. I am the only teaching elder at this church at this point in time. The other elders are ruling elders. We have the same vote, but, I, you know, I have uh, been blessed to have uh, educational opportunities, calling and that kind of thing, and, and are freed up from the church to be able to, to teach full time. Uh, it's designed to be bottom up. Their representatives take the concerns of the congregations. And there's a plurality of elders, which is probably the most important thing. You know, it's interesting. We actually could function. Well, I don't know if we could function. It, legally, we could function as a Presbyterian church without deacons. But if we don't have elders, we're supposed to close the doors. The ARP will shut us down because we believe so strongly in this plurality of leaders. There has to be accountability. Uh, there has to be people checks and balances within the system itself. So the adherents, of course, are all the, the, the Reformed Presbyterian churches. This is what it looks like. So you have a general assembly. Uh, PCA calls it general assembly. We call it a synod. Then you have the congregation, the Presbyterians. And there's this mutual accountability and connection between all of them there. All right? Congregationalist government. That's uh, the, the, basically the congregation is autonomous. They're, uh, they're not subject to other uh, congregations. They believe in local congregations as the final court of appeal, not a bishop, council, or a convention. Also, this comes out of the Reformation with all these years of abuse of the Catholic Church. The church has just said, we're done with this. We are done with this. A lot of the Puritans, a lot of our Puritan heroes were congregationalists. Uh, he, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, tell it to uh, let him be as a Gentile and tax collector. So here they see this as, as, as saying that the church is the final authority when dealing with, for instance, a disciplinary problem. Argued that Paul's letters uh, place the final emphasis on governing on the individual congregations. And uh, I have here should believe in the plurality of elders, but it's interesting uh, and, the, and, the, and the adherents are Baptist, non-denominational, independent. Uh, I think most of the Pentecostal churches, uh, uh, Assemblies of God, are probably Congregationalist kind of churches. Actually, I don't know that, but somebody else may know that. But, uh, and that may be different between di di different uh, uh, 
charismatic congregations. But, uh, so, but, you, but, but you're actually seeing here, it's like I say, it's, it's, I mean, this is their structure. Let's do this. So you got basically congregation, congregation, congregation. All right. So basically the corresponding models of Episcopal government would be more like a monarchy. Presbyterian would be more like a republic. And congregation will be more like a direct democracy. Everybody, everybody has a vote. Now, again, there's nothing pure here. We, we believe this is what Scripture teaches. We believe this is what the book of Acts models. We believe it's the thing that, that Presbyterianism is the thing that mo best takes into account human nature. All right? But guess what? Sometimes it just don't work. <laughs> or it can be slow to work. Yeah, I think I've told you the famous action. It's been credited to Sinclair Ferguson. I don't know who actually said it, but if you don't know who said it, just say Sinclair Ferguson and, you know, you get points. But he said the Presbyterian, the Presbyterian form of government is the most biblical form of government that doesn't work. Why doesn't work? Because it's full of people, right? All right, so in a sense, you could say that about all of them, but, but Episcopal government has some, prof not, they're not without some biblical the Council of Jerusalem argument is not a half bad argument. Um, church history certainly favors the Episcopal form of government. But, and if you've got a benevolent, godly bishop or archbishop, that can be a really efficient, good form of government. It's not all bad, right? But if you have a tyrant, it can be very, very difficult. And you end up having these, sometimes you'll have these decisions made in headquarters that are foisted down onto the congregations. I'll give you a classic example. Do you all remember, was it 20, 25 years ago where the Methodist church uh, decided that you had all these white suburban Methodist churches and then you had these black churches and the black churches had black pastors and the white churches had white churches. So they went and made the decision that the black pastors will all now go over to the white churches and the white pastors will all go over to the black churches because we need to learn how to get along with each other. It's not a bad idea in a sense because we do need to learn to get along. We do have kind of our exclusive areas and stuff like that. But I know and nowhere in Paul's qualifications do you see that the qualification of an elder is to be white or to be black. The whole thing was motivated by racial equity and things like that. And the churches were told, you will do this. And I, I, now I'm, I don't know, I'm not a Methodist, but I'm sure there was some input from congregations and, and, and things like that. But it happened, okay? And I don't think it worked out real well because it's so artificial. It's artificial, right? Um, and then, of course, you had decades, centuries, a century of abuse from the Catholic Church. Uh, but you have this other advantage. There is a unity here. Uh, if you... Uh, the the uh, uh, if you go to the, uh, an Anglican church next Sunday, don't. But if you do, <laughs> if you go to an Anglican church, you're going you're gonna to see an order of worship, uh, a system of worship with references and, and, and reading of Scripture and everything that's also being used at other Anglican churches all over the world. There's some power to that. There's unity in Catholicism. Now, they've made the tent really big to get away with that unity. But if you're a Catholic worshiping in El Salvador, you can be a Catholic working, worshiping in South Korea and be very comfortable with, with what you're seeing. There's some advantages to, to, to that. Uh, again, if it's benevolent, if it's good. But you also have the Pope 
you know, uh, striking a medal in celebration of St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre with 60 to 100,000 Protestants were murdered in their sleep in France uh, and, uh, and calling crusades against uh, Bohemia because of the Protestant movement there and burning people at the stake and stuff like that because you have this unchecked authority. Presbyterian is more of a republic. What, what famous country that we're big fans of have a republican form of government? America. America, right? Okay. We love America, right? And, uh, uh, and uh, people say this all the time. You know, America, our democracy must continue. We are not a democracy. Democracies lead to chaos and the majority rule and oppress the minority. In a Republican form of government, you've got representative government. Think of senators and congressmen as elders. You've got checks and balances. You've got a an executive branch, a judicial branch, a legislative branch looking after. Well, again, it's the most biblical form of government that doesn't work, right? It doesn't work, but it's the best thing that doesn't work, right? So, so this is not new territory for us. I mean, basically, the, the reformers brought back this church system of government and the American founding fathers thought that's a good government for, way for us to emulate our, our system of government. They were biblically grounded. Then you have congregationalists where everything is direct. It's basically the congregation rules. There's some real advantages to that. Okay? There's some disadvantages to that. Uh, you, you, there's no accountability. There's no way to appeal. Um, again, we were a congregationalist church. And, and one thing, you know, just for practical reasons, you're just out there by yourself all the time. Now, again, that... Purely on paper, you can't judge this thing because in the Episcopal form of government, there is accountability. The, the, those bishops are looking around and keeping other bishops accountable, okay? In the Congregationalist form of government, there is some accountability. Y'all remember, again, I mean, I'm already throwing a few stones, might, well, might as well throw a few others. Remember when the pastor of New Spring some years ago, Perry Noble, on Christmas Eve, rewrote the Ten Commandments? Y'all remember that? He decided, I've rewritten the Ten Commandments there. It's not really the Ten Commandments, it's ten words. And he kind of rewrote it. And he is, he is a, an antinomian. He, he has been hurt by legalism. And he wants everybody to know that, you know, you, you, you don't have to be, uh, adhere to, to laws and things like that. So anyway, so he said, he said, basically, you know, I'm rewriting the Ten Commandments. Well, it's interesting. You know, that caused a scandal. There was headlines in the newspaper and the... New Spring is technically a Southern Baptist church, even though they don't advertise that. The head of the South Carolina Southern Baptist Convention was up here the day after Christmas having a talk with Perry Noble about rewriting the Ten Commandments. Because that's what he said. I've rewritten the Ten Commandments. And, um, and just softened them considerably. So, and he sent out an apology. And, and so there is accountability there, uh, you know, but it's, it's not so much official. But basically, you want to be part of our convention. You want to get the insurance benefits, the retirement benefit and all this stuff. You won't go be rewriting the Ten Commandments. I'm sure that's kind of how that conversation went. So, again, there are disadvantages and advantages to each one of them. Uh, you've probably been part of some of these. You've seen advantages and disadvantages. Um, they're all imperfect. They're all imperfect. But we feel like we have uh, biblical grounds for being Presbyterian. All right, let's talk about the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, the ARPC, and where do we come from? Have you all studied much of this? It's actually...
pretty interesting. Uh, well, you're going to learn some now, okay? So basically, it, uh, the, our denomination came out of the Protestant Reformation like uh, other, other Bible-believing uh, denominations did. It kind of goes back. John Wycliffe was considered the morning star of the Protestant Reformation. And he was, he was a, a Catholic monk. He was a professor at Oxford. And he, start, he, he did this radical thing. He started reading the Bible. And he started looking at all these rules and regulations that were coming from Rome. And he was looking at the Bible and he's saying, they just don't match up. And he started saying, why do clergy have all these special privileges? He, he actually, it's funny, years before Calvin was born, he was a Calvinist. He started teaching the doctrine of election. He started saying that the word of God needs to be in the vernacular language so people can understand it. These poor pe peasants don't speak a word of Latin. They come to a church service they, to, to hear Latin and they can't even take communion. They watch the priest take communion and it's full of superstition. And everything. He started just, well, he made a lot of enemies. He actually survived. He died of, of old age. Uh, and interesting thing, though, at the Council of Constance, they voted to condemn him as a heretic, they went back, dug up his bones, burned his bones, and threw them in the river. Just because you just don't mess with the Catholic Church like that, right? So they wish they could have killed him, but they didn't get to kill him in, in, in time here. So he was the morning star of the Reformation here. Jan Hus down in Bohemia was really very much like Martin Luther, about 100 years before Martin Luther. He started preaching uh, the Word of God. Uh, he started teaching people, the, the, the Bible people got converted. There was a revival in Bohemia, Czechoslovakia here. Uh, and he was called to the Council of Constance. He had been given promises from his prince that he would have safe passages. He got there, his prince betrayed him. They burned him at the stake as a heretic. Then the Pope declared a holy war against Bohemia and sent Catholic churches in there to, uh, to arrest and kill all the pastors to burn the churches uh, and that kind of thing. But Martin Luther discovered some of Jan Hus's writings. And he started thinking, you know, this heretic was right. Uh, and uh, so Martin Luther, of course, is kind of the big one we know. The big difference between he and Hus is he actually had the protection of his prince and was not murdered, which is a miracle. Uh, he died also of, of old age. And um, so Martin Luther... Uh, kind of took up a uh, 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 hundred years later. And Luther's writings came at the same time where, where uh, printing became more affordable and people could read his writings. So his books were being smuggled out of Germany and were going all over the world uh, and uh, including to England with William Tyndale. William Tyndale believed that, that an English person ought to be able to read the Bible in English. So he developed this Tyndale translation. He was harassed and harangued. He fled to the continent, was finally captured in Brussels. He, and he was condemned to die as a heretic. He was strangled at the stake. And then they burned his body. His last words were, God save the King of England. A year later, the King of England authorized an English version of the Bible. And he got burned because he said the people ought to have an English version of the Bible. Uh, John Calvin, of course, uh, in Switzerland, uh, he it, it's kind of one of these tragic points of uh, <clears throat> of church history. Calvin, of course, believed a lot of the same things Martin Luther did. They thought basically uh, reform folks could get together with Lutherans. We could get, we could do things together. They had 13 points they needed to be able to agree on. They agreed on every one of them except for the presence of Christ at the uh, colloquium of Marlborough. Uh, about the presence of Christ, Christ in the Lord's Supper. And Luther said, this is my body. 
didn't really define it, but, but he didn't really believe in transubstantiation uh, that the, the bread actually becomes Christ, but he believes it's in there, you know. Our view was, yeah, the presence of Christ is in here and through us and everything. It's more than a memorial, but it's this. But they couldn't come together. So when you had the 30 Years' War, you literally had Calvinist armies fighting Lutheran armies. So at one point of, of not being able to get together. This is why, you know, we kind of work with each other on things, right? So anyway, John Calvin, of course, uh, had this turn Geneva into this, this almost perfect town. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, crime had gone away. There was this mass conversions of people. The church, uh, the uh, town fathers were, were bringing in biblical principles. Corruption had been done away with. And they were in Switzerland. So you had these basic cantons were, were sort of independent kingdoms. And they had some freedom to be able to implement some of these these policies. Well, when England got hot and Bloody Mary starts persecuting and, and killing uh, Christians in England, Fox's Book of Martyrs, a lot of the martyrs in there were written during that time or written about during that time. Many people fled the continent and some of them went to Switzerland, including John Knox. And John Knox got trained, discipled under John Calvin. He saw the biblical form of government here. When the things, when Elizabeth took over from Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary died uh, young. Elizabeth took over. He felt it safe and he went back and established the, the, the Church of Scotland. To read his story is amazing because he really, it was basically him against all the corruption uh, of, the, of, the, of the system there. And, uh, and he stood his ground and established the Church of Scotland, okay? So these are, these are, these people died to give us what we have, an English Bible. But see, it threatened the power base. If you don't, if you, if the, if the service is in Latin, we control the service and we can tell you what the Bible says. They did not want people reading the Bible for themselves because you end up having this crazy thing like a, re, a reformation, right? All right. So here's a open European beginnings for the associate reform, associate presbytery of Scotland organized at Garney Bridge. On December 6, 1733, the first ministers were Ebenezer Erskine, James Fisher, William Wilson, Alexander Moncrief. They were known as seceders because they seceded from the Union, in a sense. They seceded from the Church of Scotland. Why did they secede? A mongrel form of church government, basically Episcopal form of government, was forced on the Church of Scotland when the Stuarts gained control again in, in 1661. Then Presbyterian was restored when William and Mary came in and whooped up on the Stuarts and took, back over, took, took things back over. William and Mary were Protestants from Holland, so they, they affirmed the Presbyterian form of government. So, so, but then you still had a lot of this Episcopal influence that was being felt all throughout the Church of Scotland. And they just thought there's to, this is bringing in uh, th things that are that's kind of corrupting the church. There were some doctrines that were uh, not in agreement with the Westminster Standards, some Arminian and Socian, which are non-Trinitarian influences that were being permitted, that were not being disciplined within the Church of Scotland. So good doctrine was being tainted. People were not adhering to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And one of the big ones was the practice of patronage. You know what patronage is? Basically, you're a wealthy landowner. You pick the pastor. Because it's a parish church, you own the parish, so I'm going to pick the pastor, he's going to be in charge, and I'm going to pay most of his salary, if not all of his salary. Now, if I was a pastor, and Jeff Carufi was the patron of this church, and all of my salary came from Jeff Carufi, do you think I would make jokes about engineers? Yeah, I probably would. Yeah. But do you think a normal pastor would make jokes about engineers? You know, 
So think about that. I mean, you're basically... Now, and again, sometimes it worked really well. Think about it. And I've read accounts of this. You've got a guy who's a farmhand. He works on this, this uh, patron's land. He gets drunk. He starts beating his wife, okay? So the wife doesn't know what to do. The wife goes to the pastor. The pastor meets with the patron. The patron and the pastor meet with the man and say, you touch her again and you're out of here and you're unemployed and you will not work again and you're going to go to prison. You got my attention. You got my attention. Because basically the, the big man of the county and the church are working together. So sometimes it was a good thing, but very often it was not. And basically... Rose had no choice who the pastor was. Okay, I mean, don't you think you ought to choose your pastor? I mean, that's just that's kind of a basic. When, when, when our system of government now, when we have an ordained office comes forward, the congregation gets to vote. And, you know, it's probably never going to be a 100% vote. If it's 60%, the pastor probably should not accept because there's some questions there. But you get a say-so, shouldn't you? You tithe, this is your, your blood is in these walls. Shouldn't you have a say-so into, uh, into who the church is? So, so they were opposed to this whole system. It had gotten cr- it's medieval, right? It's, it's like a serf. The church becomes a serf. And this is what you get when you have patronage. Right? Uh, Mr. Collins of Pride and Prejudice fans, that that. Kind of greasy pastor. The, the lady Catherine de Berg owns his his living and stuff like that. And he just he's always like, oh yes, she's she's just so wonderful. He just he he I can't watch it because he and their mother just drives me crazy. I can't watch this version of Pride and Prejudice, you know. But that's I mean, I would have a hard time sitting under this guy's teaching. He's just a he's just a, a spineless kind of guy, right? All right. So that is the associate Presbyterian, the Reformed Presbyterians, started by John McMillan and Thomas Nairn. They were known as covenanters because they descended from those who fought for the crown rights of King Jesus. What's a covenanter? All right, let me, let me diverge for a second here. This is a great little book, Fair Sunshine, about the, the history of the covenanters and how they were martyred and that kind of thing. I would recommend uh, this to you. It's, it's an inexpensive paperback. I think it's Banner of Truth. Yeah, Banner of Truth. Uh, but you read about what these people... What were these people endured, literally living in caves, uh, and uh, and and they started basically they started a Presbyterian army, and uh, they fought back. and the king And the king, the, the people were so opposed to fighting against these people that the king of England hired mercenaries a lot of times to harass them. Uh, Cameron was probably one of the greatest leaders they knew of. They took a twenty five year old pastor and uh, and killed him. Uh, I think they hung him. Uh, you know, for, 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 for basically saying Presbyterian form of government is, is, is the rule. Because remember, how did we start out? Who is the head of the church? Jesus. For saying that, they could be killed as treason. Because the king of England is the head of the church. And again, you come out of a situation, it's hard to imagine that now, but everything was so politicized uh, back during the medieval time and during that early uh, uh, Reformation time and that sort of thing. You know, in America, we just haven't struggled with those kind of things because we have the separation of church and state, which is really a, a profound benefit. But that wasn't the case back then. So you stand up for convictions, biblical convictions, you could be accused of treason. So they stood up for Presbyterianism. Let me just give you two examples of, of, of covenanters, this heritage that we have. 
On May 11th, May, uh, I'm sorry, on 11th May, 1685, Margaret Wilson and Margaret McLaughlin uh, were drowned in the Solway Firth at Wigtown for attending Covenantals, uh, uh, Presbyterian uh, uh, meetings in the woods, and refusing to take the oath against James Rennick's apologetic declaration. Growing up, Margaret Wilson, 18, and her brother and sister had often had to hide from government troops because they couldn't go near the Episcopal ministers and go to hear, they would not go hear the Episcopal ministers. One day, however, Margaret and her sister Agnes were finally caught. Her father managed to get the younger daughter released but could not save Margaret. She was to be drowned with the older woman, Margaret McLaughlin. The soldiers tied them both to wooden stakes in the water. The younger Margaret was tied nearer to the shore so that she would see the older woman die first and be persuaded to give up her beliefs so she wouldn't die as well. As the older woman was drowning, the soldiers asked the younger Margaret what she thought now, and Margaret said, I see Christ wrestling there. Then just when she herself was about to drown, the soldiers lifted her head and asked her to pray for the king. She answered, God save him, if you will, for it is his salvation I desire. However, when they asked her to take the oath, she said, I will not. I am one of Christ's children. Let me go. And the soldiers pushed her head down under the water again, and she died. Just before death, Margaret sung from Psalm 25. And this wasn't an issue of Trinity. It wasn't a person of Christ, the humanity of Christ. It was church government. She was a martyr for Presbyterian uh, church government uh, because she thought that was the most biblical thing and that Jesus was the, the head of the church. One account says they actually resuscitated her and then let her drown again. We're going to meet that girl. That girl was tough. Age 18. Uh, so... So that's kind of our, that is our spiritual legacy as ARPs, is these, these, these bold covenanters uh, that, that kind of started another denomination because the Church of Scotland had gotten corrupted. They're characterized by adherence to Westminster standards, continue to practice covenanting. They're bound by oath to defend the faith. They held the divine right of Presbyterianism. They were psalm only. Uh, they only sang psalms. They, they wouldn't sing hymns. And weary political institutions that would compromise crown rights of Jesus. You know, so they were kind of, you know, um, not so trusting of the government. Right? So here's the American beginnings. Covenanters came to America early. New England, South Carolina, New Jersey in 1685. And they were missionaries. They tried to plant churches. The first Reformed Presbyterian minister was in 1752. 1782, two denominations joined to form the Associate Reformed Synod of Philadelphia. Okay, so the Associate Presbyterians and the Reformed Presbyterians in Scotland never came together. But in America, they came together and became the Associate Presbyterians. So that's where we get the name of our denomination. Starting Philadelphia was the, the headquarters of Presbyterianism in the New World. And it, it was that way all the way up until 1861. What happened in 1861? Yeah, the War of Southern, uh, Southern Independence. Uh, when, when South Carolina bombed a federal fort in Charleston, right? Okay, so suddenly Philadelphia becomes, comes behind enemy territory, right? So then they started the Southern Presbyterian churches and what will become the PCUSA. Uh, and they split during that time. I think the same thing with probably Baptist, and I mean, there was a Southern Methodist denomination. I mean, again, you, you ended up having a different country for four years there. Uh, four synods were formed, the Synod of New York, Pennsylvania, uh, uh, 
Sosito, which is Ohio, and the Carolinas. But then in 1803, the Senate of the Carolinas organized at the Old Brick Church down in Fairfield County near Williams, uh, Williamsburg. Uh, Jack and Sarah, y'all were there two weeks ago? A couple of months ago, they went and visited the Old Brick Church. You know who has the key? Uh, Grady uh, Phillips. Remember our, our uh, Gideon speaker from last year, Grady Phillips? He has a key to the Old Brick Church. So you call, I got Grady's number. You want to go see the Old Brick Church and see where it all began. You call Grady and he'll, he'll let you in and he'll try to sell you a tombstone when he's there. Uh, so he makes tombstones. All right, so then you, uh, so they had this establishment of theological seminary formed in New York, which became Union Theological Seminary, which was kind of up there with Princeton and Columbia as, as the premier, one of the premier Presbyterian seminaries in America until it embraced the, the counter-religion of liberalism. As G. Gresham Machen will tell you, liberalism is not a form of Christianity. It's a different religion. When you don't believe in the supernatural, it's hard to claim the, ter- the term Christianity, seeing that he rose from the dead in a supernatural way. So, uh, and then uh, theological seminary was formed in New York, or then Senate of South Carolina becomes its own denomination in 1822. So, hey, 200-year anniversary, right? And the other denominations kind of got absorbed or they split and this kind of thing. So that's why we're predominantly a Southern denomination. Uh, the OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, tends to be a predominantly uh, a Northern denomination. The PCA is all over the place. But we also have churches in the North. We also have a, a, a very strong uh, Presbyterian Canada uh, right now. Erskine College was founded in 1839. 1839. Uh, and uh, so founded there. I, I spent three days in the vault in Erskine reading 200-year-old Presbytery minutes when I was doing a project for Presbyterian Church history. I wrote a devotional. And it was remarkable. These professors, uh, the Erskine College had all of its investment in Southern Confederate railroads. All right, what happened to the Confederate railroads when Sherman came into town? They didn't fare real well. <laughs> you know, they would take the, the railroad ties, they would heat them, and then they would wrap them around a pole. They called them Sherman's bow ties. So he completely destroyed everything. They lost everything. So professors taught at Erskine and weren't paid for years, years. Uh, people would bring them a chicken. People would bring them a pie, you know, for teaching them a seminary course. So, you know, that, that institution has been around for a long time. And, of course, I got to mention Bon Clarkin, right? We're, we're going to be there all this next week. Bon Clarkin was purchased in 1921. There's an interesting history there. There's this uh, a, 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 a man, a very wealthy man, had married a German woman. Well, we went to war with Germany. Uh, and uh, she wanted to go back to Germany. She didn't like living in, didn't like living in the Carolinas. What's with that? And, uh, but so he said, well, I'll build her a big German house up in the mountains so she can feel like she's in Bavaria. So he did. And there's this gorgeous German, have y'all been up there? There's this gorgeous German looking house up there. And uh, she still didn't like it. <laughs> you know? So uh, anyway, so Von Clarken ended up becoming ARP. This is back when everybody was having retreat centers and stuff like that in the mountains. So that's kind of the history of some of the ARP. There's the old brick church. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, it used to be a manse, an old manse right next to it, and I would have given my IT for a, a metal detector to find. I'm sure there's stuff all over the place, but there are graves there that go back to the dating of that church. Have uh, y'all seen the old stone church on the way to Clemson? Nan- Nancy's great-great... She's, she's been raptured. Great-great-grandfather... Charles McBride, where we get the name McBride, was the last pastor there. And, uh, 
And it's, it's probably like the story of the old brick church. Farmers would come in from all over Winsboro, all over the Oconee County, Pickens County, and they would fill their wagons with stones. And they would meet at that place and they would unload the stones to the point where they had enough to build the old stone church. I just love that. I love that commitment. You know, we're building this church brick by brick, stone by stone. So there's a picture of the old stone church. So here's the distinctives of the ARPC, gospel-centered preaching, church planning, Christian education, multi-generational ministry, cultural responsible ministry. Uh, we have uh, official uh, fraternal relationships with other conservative Bible-believing Presbyterian Church, the PCA and the OPC are, are good friends of ours. Um, my ecclesiastical endorsement as an army chaplain, uh, a state guard chaplain, was actually through a PCA agency. Uh, so it, it, it's, uh, it, it's not difficult for, for a, a, an ARP pastor to go into an OPC or a PCA church. And if some of y'all have been around long enough, we're the only ARP church history in, in, in a church in the 200 year history of the ARP church to plant an OPC church. We, we helped plant an OPC church in Hartwell, Georgia, right before we became ARP. So, um, I don't tell that to too many ARPs, uh, so here's the ARP. This is kind of interesting. You know, we got this seal, right? We got this seal, uh, and uh, where does the seal come from? So here's the description of the seal. The shield is the complete faith in God, the cross, redemptive work of the Son of God. The circle, or the nimbus, is a medieval symbol representing God the Father. Now, I like it back on the cross because it looks Celtic, right? Kind of speaks of our Scottish. Uh, and the early churches would sometimes meet in some of the, you know, Stonehenge, these Celtic circles. They were pagan but a lot of times the churches would meet there because that's where the pagans met. And they would put the cross on top of the circle to show the, the superiority of Christ over the pagan deities. So you end up with this Celtic cross, this Scottish cross. But that's the, the nimbus is a symbol of God the Father. The dove represents God the Holy Spirit. And, and, uh, and uh, of course, the cross represents God the Son. The book is the Bible. The burning bush is the indestructibility of God's holy word. So we've got, we're committed to the word of God. Alpha and Omega is the final authority of Christ in the beginning of the end. And then the scroll bears the motto, in thy light we shall see light. Again, and committed to uh, the word of God. We've got about 300 nominations, uh, 300 churches, 300, dominate, 300 churches around, around the country. And then we have uh, missionary works. We had some in Mexico, but most missionaries have had to leave because it's just too dangerous to be in Mexico. We've got the hospital in Pakistan. If you remember the pastor, uh, the, the, the man that was in charge of the hospital came and spoke to us. A lot of mission works with Muslim uh, immigrants in Europe right now and in, uh, in <coughs> Strasbourg. Uh, and we, ha we are supporting a mission work uh, in Wales, uh, trying to bring that country back into the, into the fold. So, so that's kind of why we do what we do. And there's good biblical warrant for it. Is it perfect? No. Um, and uh, is it a hill that you die on? No. You know, there, the, we have... A, we have Good relationships with people who don't necessarily, you know, we all love Baptists and we, there, there's plenty of Anglicans that would believe the same way we do. Beautiful picture of that, for instance, um, uh, for, uh, Independent Presbyterian Church, Savannah, where JP grew up going. Terry Johnson who was here for our parenting series back in the fall. The, uh, the, the, the Episcopal Church down there was more conservative and it lost its building. I mean, this... 250 year old building in savannah uh, the court took their building away and gave it to the liberals and um as as was happening here right and there was a, a, the sunday that that happened the conservatives 
who wanted, who were going to go start a new church, had a bagpiper, and the bagpiper led a procession of the conservative Episcopalians to come worship at the First Presbyterian Church of Savannah that particular Sunday. That's a beautiful picture of the fact that, yeah, we've got differences, different history, but if you love Jesus and you respect his word, uh, then you're my brother. You're my brother, and we can worship together. So we, we affirm these truths we're not dealing with some of the corruption that was in the medieval church and that kind of thing, but we think these are biblical truths. But like so many, so many of the things we've been talking about, we hold those, uh, those, those truths with a sense of humility that allows us to, to, to make sure that we have fellowship with others. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you, God, for those who've gone before us. We are grateful for them. This is not the kind of lesson that's going to lead you in, leave you in tears and be just overwhelmed. Uh, by, uh, by, by truth or anything like that. But it's something we need to know. Uh, people have paid a very high price to give us what we have. And it just makes sense. The accountability makes sense. The representative government makes sense. The elders and deacons make sense. Uh, and it's certainly what we read in the Word of God. So I pray that we'd be faithful. You can have an excellent biblical structure and a terrible church. And I pray that you would raise up men that would be uh, men of God who have these character qualifications and that this church would ever have those who are willing to serve and train uh, the, the, the people for the ministry. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.